I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this this is Hashtag Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Welcome to Hashtag History, episode 18. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And we are thrilled to announce that Kelly Boyles, the owner of Milk House Shakes in Old Sacramento, will be joining us again next week for our very special season-ending two-part episode on... (laughs) Well, it's a secret. (laughs) For now. (laughs) But it is going to be good, and if you just wait until the end of this episode, we might give you a couple hints as to what it's going to be. And by might, we are going to. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who haven't listened to every episode of our podcast, firstly, how dare you? (laughs) secondly kelly helps us close out season one by co-hosting the episode on the teapot dome scandal and we love her for it i don't know why she's agreed to keep doing this with us i know she is amazing yes she is we're so excited to have her back on yeah so you guys already know what this episode is about because obviously you can see the episode title and the reason why we're covering this topic This week is because we know that everyone knows about the JFK assassination. Everyone knows about it. I don't know anyone that doesn't know about it. And I think a lot of people also know about John F. Kennedy's brother's assassination as well. The assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. But of those people that I know, know of the RFK assassination, that's pretty much it. Like they know of it. They're aware of it. And mostly, oftentimes, just in the context of that Kennedy curse that we discussed in great detail in the very first episode of the very first season of this podcast. Mm -hmm. But what do people really, truly know about the RFK assassination? We're diving into that story this week. But first, Leah, time for drinks? Yes, always. Um, I'm going to be up front and let you know that I already had a glass of wine with dinner. Oh, I did too! Okay. Yep. <laughs> we pre-gamed without telling each other. <laughs> I did too! Okay, so I don't know about you, Rachel, but this last week has been absolutely crazy for me. Mm-hmm. I planned three events for work last week, God. went to a concert with you, possibly yes. was hung over after that concert. What? <laughs> Went to went Christmas tree hunting, um, hung up my lights, and the list goes on. Yeah. So I thought, why not just settle down with a nice glass of wine for this episode? Not only because I'm a horrible co-host who doesn't do her research, <laughs> <laughs> but also because this is a long-ass episode and we need yeah. to just get down to business. Completely agree. And I was going to tell you what I'm drinking, and then I've lost my phone. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, but I remember, actually. It was a Gnarly Orchard 2018 Sauvignon Blanc. And so that's white, right? Yeah, yeah it's a uh, white wine, yeah. and it's a 2018, and it's made in Monterey. The- oh, cool. Yeah. Mine, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's a, uh, the company is Clos de Bois, maybe. 
And it's a Pinot Grigio, so it's also white. Oh, yeah, it's a sweet white. I love it. Yes, it is. And it's very delicious. This is the same um, same bottle that I had for dinner as well, and I enjoyed it very much over dinner. I like on the back of the um, label, it says, pair this with your favorite Asian or shellfish dish, which I had pork chops with rice <laughs> for dinner. So. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite, but actually, I feel like I feel like I have read somewhere that white wine goes well with like pork and pork chops. And stuff. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I could I'm be already, wrong. <laughs> could totally I'm already be lying feeling to you. a step above fancy because typically any wine that I buy is like bottom shelf under ten dollars. And two buck chuck. This one was twelve dollars. So. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. So this is maybe the most expensive wine I've ever bought. Yeah. Um, I don't remember how much mine was, but it probably was somewhere between that. <laughs> yeah. Um, quick fact, just because I wanted to throw one fact in there for you, okay? Yeah. It's related to RFK and alcohol. Woohoo! Okay. Yeah. So, according to Evan Thomas's book, Robert Kennedy is Life, shortly after his 21st birthday, Kennedy celebrated by buying his first beer. Soon he was buying rounds for everyone in the bar. Some of the patrons began singing happy birthday to someone else and Kennedy inebriated for the first time in his life. That's probably not true. um, Became enraged at their ingratitude. He smashed a beer bottle over one man's head and refused entreaties by Kenneth O'Donnell to apologize. Oh my God. So this was, I feel like I've also heard it before that he had a little bit of a temper. Uh, I'm, about to refute that (laughs) okay no that's totally fine totally fine um sort so actually as with last week's episode you're leading perfectly into the next um portion of the episode i'm just setting it up for you yeah because i actually am going to talk a lot about his personality okay so before we do let's take a drink yes oh i've been drinking (laughs) (laughs) oh my bad okay (laughs) This one we could cheat, so I've been drinking this whole time. <laughs> I love it. Let's... I should have brought mm. the bottle in so I could just keep pouring myself some. I will have to because I'm already down to maybe the last three swallows. Oh wow! Yeah. Mm-hmm. So okay. good. Okay, so let's start this episode with a picture of Robert Francis. Yes, his middle name was Francis Kennedy. Or has he, he was often called Bobby. And I chose a really cute picture of him for you to check out, Leah. Okay. I actually already looked at it. It's really cute. (laughs) It's a picture of him, um, like, sitting on top of a desk or something. Like, it's just super cute. I don't know what else to say about it. And, of course, he's a Kennedy, so he's super attractive. He's probably, like, in his late, mid-30s, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and he's just looking super cute, kind of playful and fun. Yeah, that's why I chose that one. I thought it was a really cute picture. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Bobby Kennedy a bit before we get into the actual assassination. And just a heads up that I plan on referring to him as Bobby throughout this whole episode. I don't mean that with any disrespect whatsoever, but we already have two episodes about one Kennedy brother and we may or may not have a couple of episodes about another Kennedy brother coming up very, very soon. <coughs> so I just want to make sure for clarity purposes that there is clear differentiation between all of them. 
So when I talk about Robert Kennedy or RFK, I will most likely be sticking to calling him Bobby. Love it. <laughs> Speaking of those episodes about another Kennedy brother, if you guys have listened to the very first episode we ever did for this podcast, which like Leah said, how dare you if you haven't, <laughs> that first episode was about Chappaquiddick. And some of what I'm about to say is going to sound like a repeat when discussing the Kennedy family, if you did listen to that episode. Bobby was born on November 20th, 1925, as number seven of nine children to Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. and Rose Kennedy. We talked about Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. in that Chappaquiddick episode, particularly how he was not an easy dad. He had really high expectations for his children, especially his sons, hoping they would follow in his successes in the business and political realms. Bobby, in particular, was considered to be the runt of the family. That was his father that called him that. Nice. Yeah. He, his father didn't like that Bobby had a sweet demeanor, he, had, he was real gentle, and he showed a lot of generosity to others. Because, you know, those are all really awful things to Terrible. be. <laughs> Terrible. His dad felt that all of those things made him too soft. Bobby, therefore, didn't have a particularly close relationship with his father throughout his life. Instead, he tended to bond with his mother, who loved the softness that Bobby had that his other brothers did not. He always strove to please both of his parents, though, oftentimes taking a more firm or intense demeanor to impress his father. One particular story I like about Bobby attempting to impress his parents is this story about how he took a newspaper route as a kid. His parents were super impressed with him, you know, taking the initiative and being so hardworking until they found out that it was the family chauffeur that was actually driving Bobby around in a Rolls Royce from house to house as he made his newspaper deliveries. <laughs> That's a different world. To yeah, <laughs> a completely different world. <laughs> Oh, man. Kind of similar to Ted Kennedy, like we discussed in episodes one and two, Bobby was not the best student, with most of his teachers considering him to be average or mediocre at best. Because of the family's constant moving around, he attended a dozen different schools as a kid and ended up failing the third grade and having to repeat it. As a kid, he became super interested in American history and actually decorated his room with pictures of U.S. presidents, which may or may not sound very familiar to myself in high school because, <laughs> yes, I did have pictures of U.S. presidents on my wall in high school. I had magazine cutouts of any attractive actor. Well, I had, position. and I, I generally hung that kind of stuff on my ceiling and yes. my walls so I could stare up at them while I was laying in bed. Well, see, I, I did the same. I had like Joe Jonas above my head uh, and then right, right next Nick, to him. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I had, I, I <laughs> had, had this debate. We've had this debate, <laughs> but I'd have Joe Jonas and then like right next to him may or may not have been like George Washington. <laughs> Is that yeah. weird? No, because I had like <laughs> Nick Jonas and then I had like Paul Newman and Robert Redford. I mean, I love it. That's still very different than a US president. <laughs> <but. Yeah. laughs> they were still within the last hundred years. Right. So Kennedy went on to Milton Academy. 
He served two years in the Naval Reserve, went on to Harvard, and then later to the University of Virginia for his law degree, where he graduated and was admitted to the bar in 1951. Something neat about Bobby is that despite him being a pretty small guy at 5'10 and 155 pounds, he was actually on the varsity football team at Harvard and did really well for himself, tackling guys that were nearly twice his size and even playing a game on a broken leg. Wow, Bobby. Right. Something that's also neat, although that's a weird word to use for it, is that Bobby got married shortly before graduating from law school to a woman named Ethel, who was the younger sister of his ex-girlfriend. That's not uncommon. (laughs) No, not at all. Bobby and Ethel ended up having 11 children. You know, I was going to make a joke about like, geez, what are these people doing? And then I realized Catholic probably don't do birth control correct early in the you know 19 first half of the 1900s yep probably not a lot of other things to do (laughs) yeah but still 11 children is insane how do you keep up with like i'm not even thinking of like when they're all kids and they're running around the house and you want to pull your hair out i'm thinking like as they get a little older like okay janice has you know choir and then Tommy has baseball practice and then and just trying to remember like yeah everyone's birthdays and everyone's job schedules and whatever Mm -hmm. too much crazy we've talked before about the Kennedy curse and it was in 1944 that Joseph P Kennedy Jr the oldest Kennedy son died during World War II Kennedy Sr. had vested a lot of energy and hope into Joseph Jr. and was devastated by his death. All political focus and ambition then shifted to John F. Kennedy, the next runner-up in the Kennedy male lineage. Although JFK and RFK were not close as kids, they were eight years apart, which can make it difficult to be like buddy-buddy with your kid brother, Um, they became closer as JFK began his campaign for the U.S. Senate. Bobby successfully ran both John's um, Senate campaigns and later his campaign for the presidency. Once JFK became president in 1960, he made his baby brother attorney general, which um, no nepotism there at all, right? Right, none at all. There was actually a law passed just six years after that happened that is affectionately known as the Bobby Kennedy Law because it basically makes it so that public officials are not allowed to appoint, promote, demote, and so on, a relative. Bobby did a lot as attorney general, but unfortunately this episode's not about just Bobby in general, although that would be an awesome episode. Um, It's about his assassination. So we need to fast forward to John F. Kennedy's presidency, which then very sadly leads us to his tragic assassination in 1963. Following his brother's death, Bobby later became a senator, but attention was quickly thrust upon him to begin his campaign for the presidency. Bobby's presidential campaign wasn't doing particularly well, that is, until April 4th, 1968. Which, if April 4th, 1968 sounds familiar to anyone, that is because that was the day that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Bobby gave an impromptu, unplanned speech in Indianapolis after learning of the assassination. 
This speech really propelled him in his campaign, and it was actually the first time he ever spoke publicly about his brother's assassination. He spoke of blacks and whites coming together to fight against injustice rather than to fight with revenge. We have a small three-minute clip of that speech here for you guys to listen to. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poet was Aeschylus, and he once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. Keep in mind that that's only a small piece of his speech. But anyway, his response to King's assassination, both with that speech and the fact that he attended King's funeral, propelled him into a favorable light in the race for the presidency. On June 4th of that year, Bobby won the California presidential primary elections. At 12.10 a.m. on June 5th, 1968, he was speaking with supporters at the Ambassador Hotel in the Embassy Room Ballroom in Los Angeles. He ended his speech to his supporters with the phrase, and now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. There were reporters at another location in the hotel, the Colonial Room, so Bobby and his staff decided to go meet with them to do a press conference following his victory in the California polls. 
A manager of the hotel took Bobby through the kitchen area of the hotel. There, Bobby met a busboy by the name of Juan Romero. It was as he was shaking hands with Romero that another man by the name of Sirhan Sirhan appeared, rushing towards Bobby, firing eight times and hitting him with three of those shots. He was firing from a .22 long rifle caliber uh, revolver. This was at approximately 12.15 a.m. Bobby had a bodyguard and a former FBI agent there that quickly rushed Sirhan and got the gun from him. Bobby slipped to the floor where... Leah, I have a picture for you to look at. I have zero interest in describing at length the pictures of Bobby just moments after he was shot. But I do think one thing in particular that was captured in this picture is really cool. I should also explain that there was media all over this hotel at this time. So it's not surprising that there was media in the kitchen with Bobby at the time of his assassination. These particular pictures were shot by a reporter named Boris Yarrow, who actually later reported that upon developing the pictures in the dark room back at the studio, he wept. Anyway, check out that picture, Leah. I could see why he wept. Looking at it, I got kind of emotional. I yeah. don't know why. It's probably the wine. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like, it, it's sad. And I'm not sure what detail you're... Mm-hmm want me to point out, but um, I'll let you do that. <laughs> what I want you to notice there is there's, um, so Kennedy, he's laying on the floor, obviously. I don't even know how to describe him. Um, complete- Looking like he's been shot. Yeah, ex- exactly. But still, still awake. Yeah. Yeah, it's, so what I find cool about this picture, neat about this picture is um, you see there's a young man with him that's knelt down beside him. Is that that waiter that they... Exactly. Yes. So that is Juan Romero, the busboy that Kennedy had just met. After Kennedy was shot, Romero got down beside him and started comforting him. Romero later reported that Bobby asked him immediately following the incident as he was laying there on the floor... He asked him, is everybody okay? Romero told him, yes, everybody's okay. To which Bobby replied, everything's going to be okay. And then he relaxed. (laughs) I know. Okay. Are you crying? That's really sad. Oh, it's devastating that that's like, that was his first concern. Is everyone else okay? Because, you know, I've only been shot three times, but I'm just checking on everybody else. Yeah. And then Romero reported that once Bobby was assured that everyone else was okay, that's when he relaxed and kind of let himself slip. <sighs> yeah. There had been a total of eight shots fired, uh, like I said earlier. Bobby had been hit in the head once and twice in the upper body, both of those latter bullets piercing through his right armpit area, with one coming through his chest and the other coming through his neck. The remaining five shots hit five other people in the room, but thankfully, none of those injuries were fatal. There were so many people at the hotel in support of Bobby in relation to his presidential campaign that there were actually a handful of doctors there as well, including a trauma surgeon. It took an ambulance 17 minutes to reach Bobby, but he was being treated at the hotel in the meantime. He was in and out of consciousness at this time. It appeared as though he still had um, some ability, like motor abilities for his limbs, but he was mentally coming in and out. One of those many people that were at the hotel that night was his wife, Ethel, who was three months pregnant. 
she was able to get in to see him and kneel beside him before he was transported to the hospital. By 12.32 a.m., Bobby was lifted up onto a stretcher to be transported to the Central Receiving Hospital. As he was being lifted up, Bobby said, don't lift me, and those were the last words he ever spoke. Once arriving at the Central Receiving Hospital, medical personnel, personnel there did everything they could for him before realizing that he should have been transported to the Good Samaritan Hospital in the first place. It's said that those that transported Bobby were not aware of the extent of his injuries when they initially took him to the Central Receiving Hospital. Had they known, they would have taken him straight away to the much more equipped Good Samaritan Hospital. The Good Samaritan was only two blocks away, but still, there is the question about whether this delay in Bobby receiving appropriate treatment could have saved his life. Most argue that it didn't make a difference, though. Once he reached the ICU at the Good Samaritan, that's when he was finally undressed and doctors discovered the other two bullet wounds to his body. By 2.45 a.m., he received a craniotomy, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. They opened up his skull and spent nearly four hours removing bullet fragments and bone from his brain. A lot of the research that I did reported that although this was 50 years ago and they did not have the same kind of CT scanning capabilities that we have today, the surgery they performed and the procedures that they took very much mirror what a surgeon would have done had this incident happened in 2019. Bobby did regain some mobility in his body, but he obviously never fully recovered. Within hours, the swelling of his brain got to a point where he stopped breathing. At 1.44 a.m. on June 6, 1968, he was pronounced dead. Now, let's get back to who this Sirhan Sirhan guy is. I've uploaded a picture of him, Leah, not necessarily for you to describe because I know it's difficult to just describe what someone's face looks like, but just simply so you and our listeners can get a visual as I talk about him. Yeah, I want, I was curious, like, what kind of guy has two first or two <laughs> names that are the same, and now I know it's this and, guy. And there he is. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll upload that picture so you guys can see it too. And as always, we upload that picture the same day that the episode's released. Um, because I've heard from some people that they they like to look at the pictures kind of as they're listening to the episode. So hopefully that gives you guys a, a visual of Sir Han Squared. <laughs> Please call him that from now on. <laughs> at the time of the shooting, Sir Han was only 24 years old. He was born in Jerusalem, a Palestinian Arab, who stated that he grew to hate Bobby Kennedy after learning of his support for Israel. Which, quick additional history lesson here, Israelites and Arabs were at major odds at this time. In still, fact, still, and still, 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 <laughs> only one year prior to this incident, there had been a war between them known as the Six Day War, which resulted in a victory for Israel. Which, as I'm sure you can imagine, did not sit well with the Arabs. I have an excerpt from Sirhan's diary for you to read, Leah. This excerpt is pulled from an entry he made on May 19, 1968, and was located when police did a search of his home following the assassination. Okay. <clears throat> Trying to get in the zone here. <clears throat> My determination to eliminate RFK. I wonder if he actually did write RFK. Probably. He did. Yeah, okay. he did. My determination to eliminate RFK is becoming more and more of an unshakable obsession. 
RFK must die. RFK must be killed. Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated. He must be assassinated before the 5th of June, 68. So why exactly was that date so specific? There's speculation that perhaps this particular date was so important to Sirhan because June 5th, 1968 marked the first anniversary of that six-day war that I just talked about. When Sirhan was apprehended, they literally found in his pocket a newspaper clipping regarding Bobby Kennedy's support of Israel. In addition to that evidence, there were so many eyewitnesses to the crime that you would think conspiracy theories couldn't possibly exist. But alas, we know American politics and we know anything related to the Kennedy family always comes with a list of conspiracies. Some of the foundation for the theory that Sirhan could not have committed this crime, at least not on his own, comes from Sirhan himself. We have another audio clip here for you guys to listen to. And I mean, (laughs) you tell me if it makes any sense at all to you. I started searching for coffee that was all what i wanted to do and i found some in the kitchen area but where i don't remember sir in a kitchen type room i don't remember where i saw it but i I remember getting the cup it was a shining larger urn and uh, there was a girl there no no no. i don't remember much what what happened after that you don't remember i don't remember do you remember anything other than the choking and, uh, and the commotion, I don't remember that. On May 18th of last year, you were sitting and writing in your room. They're, they're the writings of a maniac. They're the writings of Sirhan Sirhan. Yes, sir, but they're not the, the writings of me now, sir. I'm not mentally ill, sir, but I'm not perfect either. Okay, so any thoughts, Leah? Um, so he's claiming insanity, which, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. um, I would agree with that. <laughs> um, but he, I don't know, he seems kind of creepily happy. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't have much else to say. He, he I got, I get a creepy vibe from him. That's for sure. Definitely. I just know for myself, I heard that for the first time years and years and years ago, and it doesn't matter how many times I hear it, every time I'm like, eh? What? Because that's, that's, eh? That's his response to, like, tell us about assassinating Robert Kennedy. Like, tell Uh us about the experience, tell us about what you did. And he's like, an urn. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, I was looking for coffee, and there was a woman there. And that's all I remember. Even, yeah, even up to an interview that he did just in 2011, he still denies remembering killing Robert Kennedy. What? Yes. Similar to with his brother's assassination, there was the belief that there could not have been a lone shooter. Witnesses stated that they saw Sirhan standing about a yard away from Bobbity. 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 boo boo. Bobbity. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Woo, let's try that again. <laughs> Maybe that one glass of wine with pork chops was not helping. So, witnesses stated that they saw Sirhan standing about a yard away from 
Bobby when he shot at him, but the fatal shot, the one in Bobby's head, could only have been delivered from about an inch away based on medical findings. So there's the theory that there has to have been a second gunman that delivered that fatal shot. One eyewitness, even as recently as 2008, has now changed his mind and believes that there must have been a second gunman. Others that were there stated that Sirhan was moving all over the place, as was Kennedy, who, if you will recall, was shaking hands with people as he was coming through the kitchen. So it's possible that the direction that his head was turned as he was shaking hands and Sirhan's erratic mobility could lead to their proximity to one another. And I just wanted to point out that it's stupid that, like, frickin' 50 years later, someone's like, oh, actually, I remember differently. When, like, science shows our memory is <laughs> Sorry. Yes. But, like, our memories are just memories of other memories of memories that we had yep. once. Yeah. So you can't tell me that 50 years later you think your memory is legit. Right. Any better than it was way back then. Right. Yeah, but I will also say, playing devil's advocate, that it has to have been insane in that kitchen at that time. Oh, for so sure. So to recall yeah. to recall everything going on and how many people were there and who was shooting who, it could be difficult to decipher. For sure, I think it would have been difficult to decipher five seconds after it happened. Right, and then impossible fifty years later. <laughs> Absolutely. The other thing that leads to a lot of speculation is the number of bullets shot. As stated earlier, there were a total of eight shots made from Sirhan's gun. We know that Sirhan had a 22 caliber revolver, which there is so much that can be said about the actual revolver and how he gained possession of it. But this episode would turn into a two hour episode if I went into all of that. Anyway, we're confident that this is the gun he used. And this gun only had eight rounds in it. It could not physically shoot more than eight rounds without being reloaded, and all white eyewitnesses confirm that there was no way Sirhan had the opportunity to reload. We also know that of the eight shots fired, two stayed in Bobby's body. All five that hit other parties stayed in their bodies, which leaves, math equation everybody, only one bullet to be found somewhere in that room. So then why did the LAPD find three bullet holes in the ceiling and two more bullet holes in the door frame? Ooh. Yes. And there are pictures of these bullet holes. So how exactly can a gun that can only shoot eight bullets leave the marks of 13 total bullets? There is actually an audio recording referred to as the Przinsky recording, named after reporter Stanislaw Przinsky, who was there that night and recorded it all. In this recording, you can hear a total of, get this, 13 shots. This recording also determined that the space of time between each shot was too short for each of those shots to have come from one gun. This recording will always be a point of controversy, though, as other forensic experts very much disagree with this opinion and believe that you can indeed only hear eight shots. I desperately wish we could play a piece of the audio here, but the quality is horrific. So I just encourage you all to Google it and see what you can make out of it and let us know what you think. Eight shots, 13 shots. It's called the Przinsky recording, um, and that's spelled P-R-U-S-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. I bet you that guy's Polish. Yeah, you think? <laughs> 
Go check it out on YouTube, though. I've listened to it myself probably a dozen times, and half the time I think there's 13 shots. The other half the time I think there's eight shots. Um, I guess my percentages aren't great here because then there's, like, another 20% of me that can't hear anything at all, so... I am, I haven't listened to it. I'm going to as soon as we're done here. Um, but my guess is going to be if it happened in a kitchen, mm-hmm. that means there's a lot of hard surfaces. Right. And I'm not saying there were, weren't more than eight. There definitely could have been. I'm just saying there could also have been echoes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. And of course, this could not be a Kennedy assassination without theories of the CIA being involved, right? Right. (laughs) Shane O'Sullivan, a filmmaker, produced a film that came out in 2006 stating that he had evidence that there were three CIA... Holy cow, why am I tripping? I'm not really feeling drunk. Wine is is interesting. It is. It's so interesting. Wine drunk is just a different beast. Okay. It really is. (laughs) Can't be explained. Um stating that he had evidence that there were three CIA agents that had been involved in the assassination. And this can be proven by the number of photo and video video evidence of these three men at the ambassador hotel that night. Too bad that two of these three men that he identified as CIA agents were later correctly identified as sales managers Mm -hmm. attending a company conference at the ambassador hotel that night. That was their cover. Yeah, well, and that's what he said. That's exactly what O'Sullivan said. My favorite theory, just because it is the most elusive and mysterious, is the theory of the woman in the polka dot dress. Which sounds like such a good like book title or movie title. Oh my right? gosh, yes. If someone hasn't already, they better write like a memoir or some something yes. about him. Yes. I, I, that's why I love this theory. It's just so mysterious and like, like a super attractive theory. There were many witnesses that stated that they noticed a woman in a polka dot dress walking around the ambassador hotel that night. One witness in particular, Sandra Serrano, who worked for Bobby's campaign, stated that she saw the woman in the polka dot dress walk by with two men, one unknown and the other she later identified as Sirhan Sirhan around 11.30 p.m. that evening at the hotel. She then stated that about 30 minutes later, after hearing the gunshots go off, she also saw the woman in the polka dot dress alongside the unknown man running from the hotel screaming, we shot him, we shot him. Mm -hmm. Serrano's testimony is shaky at best. After it was determined that Serrano would not have even been able to have heard the gunshots from where she was that evening, she admitted that she had fabricated the whole thing. Later, though, she retracted this and said she had initially told the truth, but was worn down by the LAPD into admitting that she had lied about the whole thing. Regardless of Serrano's reliability, there were several other witnesses that spotted the woman in the polka dot dress walking around the hotel with supposedly Sirhan that evening. Regardless, Sirhan was convicted of murder on April 17, 1969. He was sentenced to death, but that sentence was later commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Interestingly, only a few months ago in August of 2019, Sirhan was stabbed by a fellow inmate so severely that he was actually removed from the prison to be treated. Sirhan is now back at his San Diego prison and in stable condition. On June 8, 1968, 
Bobby Kennedy's body was transported by train to be buried beside his brother in Arlington. Leah, check out this picture that I've uploaded and tell me what you see. Um, I see a bunch of people along the train tracks, um, obviously waiting for the train to go by, just kind of, you know, wanting to be there, wanting to witness it as he goes by. And it looks like down at the end, you can even see what looks like someone in uniform, possibly like military uniform of some kind doing a salute. Yep. So thousands of people lined up along train tracks to show their support and respect to the fallen politician. Tragedy continued to strike, though, as two people in New Jersey attempted to quickly get out of the way of the Kennedy train approaching when they jumped over to the other tracks and were hit and killed by a train coming in the opposite direction. Yeah, I was going to say that was my first reaction. And then I was like, no, I'm going to be more somber. But like, that's dangerous. So dangerous. And you can see in this picture how close they were to the tracks. And there's like kids looking like they're like leaning out over the tracks. Yeah, it's actually terrifying. I don't like it. (laughs) The Ambassador Hotel itself also hit tragedy. By the 1990s, it had run its course and was just about to be demolished when preservationists worked to sustain the landmark. It was preserved, although the areas in which Bobby had spoken and was shot were destroyed. It's now used as a community school for the Los Angeles School District and has been renamed the Robert F. Kennedy Community School. That's kind of cool. No, I think that's so cool. This is not a political statement, and I'm not suggesting that the world would have been a better place had Bobby Kennedy won the presidential election. What I do know, though, is that Hubert Humphrey ended up winning the Democratic nomination in that election and was beat out by Republican nominee Richard Nixon. Oh. Yeah, I highly doubt anyone needs the reminder that only four years later, Nixon would resign from office on account of the Watergate scandal. (sighs) I wish that um, my husband was here right now because he does a really funny impersonation of Nick. When he says, I I can't say it. I'm not a crook. That whole thing. Yeah, but I think it's actually for Futurama. There's like a specific thing that he always says when he's pretending to be Nixon. Got it. (laughs) As you all know, tragedy would continue to strike the Kennedy family because in 1969, only one year after Bobby's assassination... Something else tragic would happen. Something that you're going to have to listen to episode one and two of season one if you want to find out. If you haven't already. If you haven't. (laughs) I want to leave this episode with just one more thing. There was so much more that I wish we could have gone into in this episode, but it seriously would have ended up extending way beyond our time limit. But if you will recall, remember how I said we would be talking about another Kennedy brother very, very soon? Mm-hmm. Get ready, because over the course of the next two weeks, in an extended two-part series, we are tackling the JFK assassination. Yeah, we are. Woo! <laughs> and as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Miss Kelly Boyles from Milk House Shakes will be yeah. joining us because she's amazing. She's um, amazing. Yeah, she's a business-owning, history-loving boss lady who we are super lucky to call a recurring guest on our show. So be sure to listen in next week because it's going to be super awesome. Can't wait. 
If you guys enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to Hashtag History on whatever podcast platform you use, share it with a friend, and give us a rate and review. And as always, be sure to check us out on Instagram at Hashtag History underscore podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.